Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Vicki Basilica, and I'll be your host for today's episode. With me today is Nicole Palm, PharmD, BCCPS, Surgical ICU Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at the Cleveland Clinic. And today we're going to be talking about operating room emergencies. Thanks so much for joining us today, Nicole. Hi, Vicki. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in. Let's talk about our first operating room emergency, which is malignant hypothermia. Can you give us a little bit of a general background and then just kind of um, some personal anecdotes about like what you've seen, protocols, and then just uh, general treatment strategies? Absolutely. So malignant hyperthermia or MH is very rare but it can be life-threatening if it does happen. And obviously, based on the, the title of this session, is considered an emergency. It's actually a response that happens to some general anesthetics or succinylcholine. And um, it is genetically mediated. And so you, you find patients that tend to be at higher risk, particularly family members. And so there's a whole organization dedicated to trying to identify um, people who are at risk and identify quick and urgent treatment strategies. And there's a lot of recommendation for genetic testing in people who are considered high risk. But malignant hyperthermia, like I said, is very rare. And if you were to see it, it's it's very uh, pathognomonic. So the patients become very tachycardic, very rigid, uh, a true fever. And so not, not minor, but maybe even potentially up to 110 degrees Fahrenheit and acidemic. And if left untreated over the course of minutes to hours, you'll see muscle breakdown, the patients become hypermetabolic, and there's a lot of electrolyte derangements that can lead to neurotoxicity, cardiac arrest, hemorrhage, and eventually potentially death, usually from cardiac arrhythmias. So if we think about the patients who are most at risk based on their underlying genetics, the agents that they tend to react to are our inhaled volatile anesthetics, so isoflurane, SIVO, desflurane, um, and also succinylcholine, but things like our non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers, rectoronium, vectoronium, those don't pose any risk. Inhaled nitrous doesn't, and any of our IV anesthetics aren't risky either. And so when you see malignant hyperthermia, it's usually limited to patients in the operating room, um, although we do know succinylcholine is used outside of the ORs and our ERs and our ICUs as well. And so there is a potential to see it outside of the ORs as well. Now, knowing that patients have a history of this or have a risk or a genetic predisposition doesn't mean that the patients can't go to the operating room. We just have to have a different anesthetic plan for them. So they use a different neuromuscular blocker. They can use IV anesthetics, inhaled nitrous, whatever it may be but the anesthesia plan would need to avoid these offensive agents. So thinking about, you asked about protocols as well. Protocols should be in place and are recommended to be in place for quick and urgent treatment activation that would be preventative for this cardiovascular collapse and death. There's an organization, as I alluded to, the Malignant Hyperthermia Association of the United States, or MHAUS, 
which can be referenced. They're not associated with any particular organization or profit. Their goal is to just get the word out about this potential emergent disease, as well as uh, compile protocol examples and recommendations for best practice for treatment and prompt recognition. So one of their big recommendations and their protocols in place is that anybody, any site, any institution that uses the volatile anesthetics or succinylcholine and therefore could potentially see a reaction like this needs to have a malignant hyperthermia response protocol in place and early and quick access to the antidote, which is dantrolene. Dantrolene, for those who may not have encountered it uh, frequently in their practice, interferes with muscular contraction. So it doesn't actually block neuromuscular transmission. It just suppresses the mechanical response to the stimuli, and it can potentially then potentiate the effects of a neuromuscular walker or underlying muscular disorder. But this would be how it acts against the malignant hyperthermia response. The dosing of dantrolene is a little complicated, and since we don't see it often, I think it's worth reviewing. It's a weight-based dose. M-House recommends using actual body weight as opposed to ideal or adjusted. Usually, you would give two and a half migs per keg times one and then repeat it every four to six hours at a dose of one mig per keg until all the symptoms subside, or you reach a cumulative maximum dose, which is 10 migs per kilo. There's actually two different products of dantrolene that are available on the market, which lends itself to some confusion. Um, there's a dantrium product and a Ryanodex product. The Ryanodex is that newer formulation. The advantage is it brings us that you only need three vials on site because they're a more potent uh, concentration, whereas the dantrium uh, one is recommended to have 36 vials on site, which is a significant inventory to carry. Both have to be diluted with sterile water. And so wherever the dantrolene is stored, and it should be stored with quick and easy access to the operating suite, you would store it with the diluent as well. Um, interestingly, other diluents like D5, normal saline aren't compatible. And so we as a pharmacy department should provide that sterile water diluent. And it doesn't have good long-term stability. And so once reconstituted, it has to be used pretty quickly within six hours. There's also a best practice recommendation from ISMP or um, Institute for Safe Medication Practices that recommends institutional protocols are in place too and aligning with the M-House organization. The recommendations from both groups are that we stock dantrolene in or readily available to the operating rooms, that we as pharmacy provide directions and preparation for use with those vials, and that there are order sets or protocols in place that allow for emergency administration and prevent patient harm. So this is one of those possible avenues where we're not admixing drug and pharmacy, but actually allowing admixture re reconstitution at the bedside due to the emergent nature of the disease. The recommendation and the goal is to actually have the full dose prepared and administered within 10 minutes of diagnosing malignant hyperthermia. Um, so as you can see from that timeline, this is considered an, an extremely quick turnaround. And again, a very emergent nature to the, the recognition and treatment. And so with that, there's some recommendation too from our 
are organizations that suggest maybe role-playing simulations similarly to how a lot of us may see us role-play a CLS response, for example, in a simulation center. There's a lot of recommendation for role-playing and simulating emergency response to malignant hyperthermia as well within the operating theater. What other questions do you have about malignant hyperthermia, Vicki? Can you talk to me a little bit about what the cart should include? Absolutely. So this gets really, really technical, but whichever dantrolene formulation that you carry, whether it's dantrium or rianodex, you should have the minimum number of vials to treat an acute response. And so with dantrium, that's the 36 vials of the 20 milligram dantrium or rianodex, three of the 250 milligram vials. And anticipate that you'll need more vials for an acute treatment, but this amount will buy you time until you can obtain further supply, whether that's from another stock nearby, from your central pharmacy, whatever it may be. Also in the cart, you want to include everything and anything necessary for that reconstitution. So we mentioned the stir water for injection. Also think about including those syringes, the needles. And then beyond that, you want to include actual treatments for the acute symptoms of the disease. And so knowing that malignant hyperthermia can very acutely precipitate arrhythmias and hyperkalemia, the recommendations include stocking bicarb syringes, um, specifically at least 200 milliequivalents or four of those 50 cc vials, a couple of amps or 50 cc vials of the dextrose 50%, a couple of vials of calcium chloride, and a vial of regular insulin. And so if you put that whole group together, that's kind of your normal hyperkalemia treatment protocol, right? The insulin and dextrose and the bicarb to push intracellularly, and then the calcium to actually stabilize the cardiac membrane. There's also a recommendation to include the 2% lidocaine injection, those preloaded syringes that we can use for ACLS. And it's actually the first-line antiarrhythmic here, although amiodarone is considered an acceptable substitute. And so I think that's a little bit of a, a change in thought process for a lot of us who are used to maybe grabbing for amiodarone first. The recommendations here are actually lidocaine first if you have it available. Interestingly, mannitol used to be on this list. So for those who have been in practice for you know, decades, potentially, mannitol used to be included but it's been removed from the list because our dantrolene products actually contain mannitol in their preparation. And so with the, the large dose of dantrolene you're getting, uh, the patients will actually receive almost a half milligram per kilo of mannitol as a byproduct of the dantrolene administration. And it's actually 0.375 mg per kilo, but the dosing for neurologic emergencies with mannitol is actually close to that dose that they're getting. Other things to include on your malignant hyperthermia cart or kit that's used for response would be chilled saline, um, up uh, three liters or more. And um, that, again, knowing that these patients have extremely high fevers is to help with that temperature control. Pressure bags for administration, IV access kits, central venous kits, transducers, cold packs. One thing that I found a little interesting was the recommendation for charcoal filters. These get added to the anesthesia machines to reduce the concentration of the gas that's circulating. And so this actually helps uh, remove and bypass some of the 
positive drug. And so this would be specifically if the volatile anesthetics are at play. Obviously, this wouldn't help intervene on something uh, that's purely a succinylcholine reaction. And then finally, just a, a way to monitor your temperature and preferably a core temperature probe. And then it's probably prudent as well to keep the contact information for the M-House organization on the cart or the kit. And that, that number is actually 1-800-MH-HYPER or 1-800-644-9737. And they have a 24-hour hotline. So if an event is recognized, they can actually help guide through, help you find some other protocols, which are also available on their website. I do want to also add to um, our, our listeners, we did do a podcast um, a, a couple months ago about um, the pharmacogenomic testing about succinylcholine and malignant hypothermia. So I encourage you guys to check out that podcast and l- learn a little bit more about the pharmacogenomic testing behind the succinylcholine uh, reaction. Let's move on to another emergency that you might have seen in the OR, which is local anesthetic toxicity. Yeah, so local anesthetic toxicity, not as rare as malignant hyperthermia. I feel like this one comes up a few times a year for us. Um, This is definitely another emergent event requiring a, a prompt, rapid response for treatment. This is another one that that ISMP best practice recommends having the antidote readily available and stocked in or near the operating theater. And in this case, the antidote that we're referencing is actually intralipids. So taking a step back, local anesthetic toxicity. So local anesthetics will bind and block our voltage-gated sodium channels. And in the cases of toxicity, this can actually lead to the potential for seizures and cardiac arrhythmias. And this happens when we can either exceed the toxic dose threshold of whichever agent is being used, or if uh, the the agent is actually inadvertently administered via an incorrect route. Thinking about our local anesthetics, bupivacaine is considered to be the most risk for toxicity amongst the agents, and also both the immediate release and liposomal formulations count here. And so the liposomal formulation doesn't really buy you any lower risk compared to immediate release. If and when you get a call about a local anesthetic toxicity event, the dosing of intralipids is a little bit unique as well. Similar to our last topic, the dosing here is weight-based. In this case, the data does support potentially using ideal body weight instead of actual, which I thought was a little bit unique considering that we're talking about lipids. Um, The dosing for intralipids in terms of an emergent response and reversing local anesthetics is 1.5 mils per kilo per dose, and this is with our standard 20% uh, concentration, the same fat formulations, fat emulsions that we use for nutrition. And so as you can see, this dosing is pretty significantly different than the dosing that we're used to when we're just supplementing our nutrition with or without like a TPN patient. Most patients only need that one bolus, but if the patient does require further therapy, an infusion can be started. The infusion dosing is around 0.25 mLs per kilo per minute and usually needed for up to 20 minutes. There are some dosing variations in special patient populations, um, which we probably don't have time to explore every 
niche population, but I know one example would be like our pregnant patients and OB emergencies have slightly variable dosing for local anesthetic toxicity. And so if you're, if you're a center that does a lot of OB, familiarizing yourself with the dosing in that particular patient population would be prudent as well. In this case, in local anesthetic toxicity, you do have resources as well beyond just yourself and your pharmacist's brain. Uh, you can go ahead and call your poison control center for helpless guidance as well. And their number, um, as a reminder, is 1-800-222-1222. So we've talked about kits. We've talked about a lot of drugs. Can we talk a little bit about how to leverage your EMR, putting kits together, the importance of order sets, as well as smart pumps? and how we incorporate all of those for safety while still maintaining the accessibility of all of these critical medications? Absolutely. And I think that things like our electronic medical records and our smoke pumps, which are so, so helpful in maintaining patient safety, can sometimes, if we, if we don't build them to optimize our antidotes and our emergencies in addition to our standard care, can sometimes be a burden in emergency situations, but they're so helpful to us and so protective for the patients that I think there needs to be a lot of thought in programming and making sure that they're capable of administering these emergency therapies. And certainly these types of scenarios are very high risk for medication errors with the, the differences in dosing, the different products available, like the dantrolene products. There's a lot of room for error when we're not as familiar with, or we don't see these types of dosing every day. So there's a couple of uh, ways that we can leverage our electronic medical record, our smart pumps, our automated dispensing cabinets to help us out in terms of providing safe and effective care to our patients very quickly. So uh, one first thought I have is that I would recommend having separate files in your electronic medical record and in your smart pumps for the antidote dosing when compared to standard dosing. And this will help aid in suggestions for appropriate dosing with clinical decision support and avoiding errors. And there's a couple ways that you can do this to highlight that these are non-standard dosing. Um, one suggestion would be to actually write the word antidote in the drug file in the name of the file. And so dantrolene for antidote or intralipids for anesthetic toxicity, some way that you highlight the naming and make sure that people recognize when they look at it that it's different from our normal dosing. And using this in the smart pumps and then in the EMR, you can actually pre-default then to standard dosing and set up your guardrails differently compared to how you would for your normal dosing files. Another suggestion is to actually stock these antidotes in the automated dispensing cabinets in the procedural areas where these agents are used, or potentially if we're talking about succinylcholine, if we're talking about places that do peripheral nerve blocks in the EDs or the ICUs, stocking the agents in those areas as well, anywhere that procedurally you might encounter these agents. And so there would be a risk of toxicity. As I mentioned before with the dantrolene and the malignant hyperthermia carts, similarly here, you'd want to stop all of the components needed for administration. So if this is in a kit, if it, if it fits like that, so thinking about the lipids, you'd want to make sure that you provide filters, syringes of the appropriate sizes for reconstitution, for bolus dosing, 
or if you're going to bolus out of the infusion bags, making sure that your smart pumps are set up to do a bolus from bag feature if they're capable of that. Another thing to think about is that wherever you do stack these agents, carts, kits, ADCs, that they're readily accessible to the providers. So not behind a locked door um, or keyed entry that only one person has a key to, things like that. And then beyond that, the providers should be made aware of and educated about where the items are. And so it's not helpful if the antidote's in the ADC, but nobody in the anesthesia group knows about it and they're still calling pharmacy, right? We want to make sure that they know (laughs) that the drugs are there for them when they need them. Again, I'm going to plug that running simulations so that everyone involved knows where things are, knows how to access the syringes, the needles, the files, reconstituting in an emergency critical scenario where there's a lot of chaos, a lot of stress, a patient's decompensating. I really think that those simulations are invaluable and can help with a lot of recall, especially in knowing where the references are and who to ask for help and, and where to find the drugs that you need. As pharmacists, especially from an operational perspective, knowing we may not always be involved in the response, providing dosing cards, pre-printed labels to help shorten the time um, when people are doing the reconstitutions, the admixtures at bedside, these can help stimulate memory for the dosing as well and help prevent medication areas. And then, as I said, just having different smart pump files and EMR files, that helps prompt as well. So if I go to program a smart pump, and I pick the antidote file and the guardrail tells me that I'm programming the wrong dose, that's going to make me stop and pause and say, am I doing the right thing? Am I using the right file? Am I treating the right, the right disease with the right drug with the right dose? And so having all of that, I guess, electronic clinical decision support can really help guide providers to, to the quickest safest way to get these drugs emergently into the patients, knowing that a lot of this is going to bypass actual central pharmacy admixture. Yeah, I feel like, you know, especially with malignant hypothermia, it's, it's very akin to a code, right? I mean, so you anything that we can do to help shorten and keep things safe and easy, I think, think is, is a great best, a great best practice, especially since, you know, I think it, it is very similar to a code situation where pharmacists isn't going to be there all of the time. And with, you know, 10 vials needing to be reconstituted and it has to be sterile water and, and having a timeout, these are all, you know, stopgap measures in place to help make sure that, like you said, the right drug gets to the right patient, especially since, you know, you need it within like 10 minutes and the drug is only good for so long. And I would hate to reconstitute so many vials and realize that I did it with normal saline because I used a syringe instead of the provided, because I didn't see the sterile water because it was in a different drawer. Um, These are all great, great recommendations. Nicole, thank you so much for giving us this overview of uh, emergency, emergencies in the OR. For those of you who haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ACHP's clinical resources on emergency medicine. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the recorded emergency pharmacist series, links to articles and guidelines for emergency medicine and other practice resources. Thanks for tuning in for this episode and join us here every Thursday. We'll be joining in with ACHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to ACHP's podcast to your favorite podcast provider. Thanks and join us next time. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official. 
the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.